<clears throat> I'm getting my, my host on. Okay. Hello. <laughs> I'm going to have to do that once. Why are you laughing? Mm, just because, I don't, you know, because you're such a good friend and it's just like, I'm just going to, I'm going to crack up doing it. Get serious. <laughs> I'm good. I'm on. Okay. Now you're going to make me laugh. I have to shake it off too. It's okay. Right. That's good. We'll do, and we'll do it like five times and not be able to start. Okay. Hello and welcome to episode two of Omega Mail. I'm your host, Dan McKenzie. And if I were to boil it down, I'd say this podcast is essentially about evolutionary course correction for men. Um, My core premise is that human beings have, at least to some degree, the capacity to direct our own ethical and moral evolution, uh, both as individuals and collectively. And here we happen to be focusing specifically on how men can be better and do better for the world. So today we're exploring in particular the entertainment industry, uh, a space known for some of the highest profile Me Too transgressions, but also um, for generating some very socially conscious and progressive content. And we'll actually be talking to a female individual who is uniquely positioned to shed light on the situation in Hollywood and offer some compelling insights. So I'm thrilled that my guest today is Sandra Dewey, who is not only a one-woman entertainment business powerhouse, but also, I'm very happy to say, one of my dearest friends. Welcome, dear friend, to the Omega Male podcast. Hi, Dan. I'm so looking forward to us talking. As am I. Before we do that, though, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to like read your entire resume verbatim, but I do really want listeners to get a detailed sense of the sheer magnitude of your career accomplishments. So I'm going to just take a moment to properly introduce you. You were most recently the president of business operations and productions for Warner Media's HBO Max, TNT, TBS, and True TV. Let's let that sink in for a moment, right? As president, you were overseeing all of those platforms. That's pretty huge. Now, you'd think that for anyone to become that successful in Hollywood, let alone a woman, you'd have to elbow your way to the top, stepping on people's heads as you climb up the ladder. But in fact, you have used your increasingly powerful positions to develop a, I'm quoting your bio, a broad and meaningful framework to architect opportunities for other women and for people of color and other underrepresented employee groups. You were a longtime champion of gender and diversity initiatives at Warner. You founded Warner Media's Feminist Fridays, which is, I guess, a program dedicated to empowering and mentoring women. You also served on the company's diversity and inclusion leadership team. Earlier in your career, you were instrumental in the formation of something called Turner Women Today, a resource and mentoring group of Turner women in the workplace. Now, just to add a few of the honors you've received... Uh, You were selected to join the NAACP Entertainment Industry Board of Advisors. You were awarded Multi-Channel News' Wonder Woman Award. I remember that quite well. Um, You've been featured by Working Mother Magazine as Turner's Working Mother of the Year, and on and on and on. Um, So it's pretty obvious from that limited summary that you've been hugely successful in Hollywood, but you've also done a ton of work to help out other people, particularly women. And... um, Because of your vast experience, there's just a lot of terrain we could explore. But just to give us an entry point, could you maybe tell us a little bit about Feminist Fridays and how and why that came about? 
Um, Sure. I'm happy to tell you about that. The Feminist Fridays group is something that I have such fondness for and I'm really proud of. Interestingly, it started not out of um, some formal um, recognition of, oh, we need to build something here. Because there there was actually, within the world of Warner Media, there was quite a lot of different business resource support and different groups that were intended specifically to help women, actually. It came about because following the presidential election in 2016 and even the run-up to the election, you know, emotions were so raw And I started whatever side of the spectrum you might have been in. And I started to notice that women, myself included, were wearing um, T-shirts to the office under business wear, you know, maybe with a jacket or with a skirt that were reflective of, I think, some of the repressed feelings we were all having. And so that prompted me to think, you know, we need to have a place where we can gather and let some of this stuff out. And so I partnered with a young Um, a fabulous young executive, I asked her to host a tea party with me. And we sent out invitations for a feminist tea party. And we, you know, set up this great spread and tea and everyone came together. And it was just one of those magical moments because we gathered, we started to talk. People really let down their guard. It was an opportunity to really talk about how we felt about what was happening politically. But we also ventured, as you would expect, into a discussion about our company, where we worked, and you know the things we were proud of and where we saw obstacles, where we felt we needed support. And so we came out of that event saying this is meaningful and helpful for us all to come together. And so we we started off by just earmarking Fridays as a day where we would sort of be winking at each other. We could share articles. We would talk. We would have informal gatherings. And that's how it started. And um, then some of the fabulous younger executives put together a newsletter, a Feminist Fridays newsletter, that just became this wonderful collection of information to be shared, things to listen to, read, go see, um, personal stories. But we also brought in some amazing speakers, and we hosted events. And it really accomplished exactly what we intended to, which was to create a a place where people could feel supported and where they could talk about the challenges of the workplace and know that it was, um, you know, someplace to find solutions and um, have a support system. And through all the changes, you know, my company where I worked um, went through many management changes and a lot of shifting landscape in the last several years I was there. And so, you know, there was a lot of people that were coming and going. And I had so many women say to me that that Feminist Fridays group was a cornerstone of what made them happy and content and feel good about their jobs. It was just a a sort of grounding point for many of us. I love that. Um, And it sounds like just between that and this other um, Turner women today, it sounds to me like uh, in general, just the fact that Warner would welcome the kind of formation of these groups, it makes it clear that you weren't necessarily doing this out of some kind of shortcomings of that you were seeing in the workplace. Um, so, um, well, there was some of that, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Can I tell you a little yeah. bit? Uh, can I, if you don't mind, yeah. let me just tell you something about that Turner Women Today group because I think this is kind of interesting. So, I can actually earmark this in time because. Um, When I went to that event, which was a gathering of senior level women in what was then Time Warner, um, and it was across 
you know, where I worked at the time, Turner, Warner Brothers, HBO, there was Time Inc. at the time, there was uh, Time Warner Cable. So it was senior women from across the company. There was maybe 25 of us. And we were called to Boston for a week. I remember, you know, <laughs> um, all of us in our overscheduled kind of manic um, behavior. I remember thinking, how can I possibly go for a week and be away from my work? And I also had two young children. And this is how I earmarked the time. Um, my youngest daughter, Pearl, I was rushing to get home for her second birthday. She's now 18. So that was this was 16 years ago. But the reason why I bring this up is for all my resistance and going to spend this week, it was a real career changer for me. It was, you know, sometimes you can just put your pin in a place where life changed or there was a pivot. That um, week that I spent doing that leadership conference was that for me. And part of it was, you know, the company was supporting women, yes, but from a street business standpoint, there was all kinds of business research that was coming out saying women are great leaders, businesses that have women in charge are succeeding and making money. And the company was really trying to understand why are all these fabulous women rising to a certain level and then it disappears and they couldn't crack through the final levels. And so Anyway, it was a whole week of discussion. You know, it was kind of, to me, startling that the chairman of the company at the time, Dick Parsons, was there and spent time with us, and the company really invested in the program. But for me, what happened was I went to that conference um, viewing myself as a person. I knew I was doing a really good job. I know I knew I was perceived in a positive action, but I didn't really, I, it's kind of funny to even have these words cross my lips now, but I didn't really view myself as a leader. And when Dick Parsons and others were talking about why women are good leaders and what traits really make a difference to run a successful business, and it's not what you think necessarily, but a lot of traits that are more typically associated with women, whether it's, you know, having a um, organizational mentality rather than an individual mentality, coming from a place of empathy, being a, a listener, you know, those kinds of things. Not that men can't have those qualities too, but, you know, typically how we're socialized women, those things are really the key to business success. And I sat there for that week and I listened and I was like, that's me. I mean, there was a lot, there was a lot more to it than that and the ways that women get in their own way too. And I was, I was literally the tip, the, exactly what they were describing. I was the prototype. And I walked out of there thinking, yeah, I'm a leader. And I never went back. And that was a, that was a point at which my career really took off. And the woman who started, there was a woman in the group with me, also from Turner, based in Atlanta. She also, it was a profound experience for her as well. And she took that experience and went back to Turner Broadcasting in Atlanta, which was, you know, where, where there was many, many, many people employed. And she said, I'm going to pay this forward. I'm going to create this book, this group called Turner Women and create, you know, mentorship program and all these kind of positive things. And she she put it together in this way that benefited women for years to follow. But she asked me to start the LA chapter. And that's, you know, that's what happened. Um, so yeah, that was fabulous, too, quite so, a long time ago. So yeah, and I, and I, I love that the, the, the company made space for that, because I'm sure that's not true for, for all companies. But it's I love that we're taking this turn, because something that you brought up uh, has been bouncing around my head a lot in terms of just bigger picture um, cultural issues around business. And that is, you actually just identified that you were in a particular environment that affirmed to you that qualities that you had that, yes, are considered traditionally feminine, are leadership qualities. And I think that's 
pretty innovative messaging. I think it's healthy and I think it's true. But just to backtrack, why we're we even talking about this, right? This this whole podcast is about men. Why am I sitting here talking to you, a woman, about your success and you know women's experiences? And a lot of it comes back to what I would call antiquated messaging that we get from our childhood on. And a big part of that is traditionally that little boys are told that there's certain qualities that are male qualities or masculine qualities. And those are actually leadership is like one of them, right? Being assertive, being being a leader, being dominant, um, being strong, being ambitious, right? And then the so-called feminine qualities that women, of course, I'm generalizing, but it's based in truth, I think, that women are taught to be cooperative and empathetic and sensitive. And so the traditional business model is that in order to succeed in business, you have to be these male things. And I think part of the reason men are lagging behind maybe catching up with women in their bigger picture evolution is that women, in order just to try to vie for equal rights, to be able to become landowners, to be able to vote, women have had to do all these things in the last couple hundred years, and they've sort of had to take on these qualities that weren't inculcated in them. And men have not had a similar pressure or urgency to incorporate the so-called feminine qualities, which actually are neither feminine or masculine as you're, as you're identifying. They're healthy for everybody. So what I'm getting to is this. You still have these, what I call sort of old world thinkers. Um, and there's things I love about this particular guy and things I don't, I don't agree with at all. But I, I heard Jordan Peterson in some presentation say that women, he encourages women who want to succeed in business to be less agreeable, which is the female thing, and more assertive. And I think that that's backwards messaging for a couple of reasons. For one thing, if there's things systemically wrong that are not benefiting everyone, why are you going to just tell women, oh, you have to do this bad male behavior? Um, but also, it misidentifies what makes a real leader. So it's great that you, for you to say, like, your breakthrough, your epiphany about this wasn't, oh, I just need to be more assertive or bossy or um, dominant to be a leader. I already have these things that are useful for being a leader and it's qualities, you know, that are, that are not encouraged in everybody. It doesn't seem to me that everybody embraces what you're talking about. When I hear about how business goes down in Hollywood, I don't really hear so much about that kind of um, cooperative, sensitive, diplomatic energy being encouraged, even though we both know that's what partly makes a good leader. I hear a lot about this, what I call this cavemanish kind of a, assertive stuff. So what would you say... Do you think there's a shift happening? You just happen to be in the right place for that? Or is there more work to be done? Well, yeah, I can speak to, well, there's so many different components of what you've just said. But let me just back up a little bit to the Jordan Peterson piece, because I always am amused a little bit more bemused, I guess I would say, when people say things like, that I think are an oversimplification when they say things like, okay, be more assertive. Or for years, you know, women have been told you don't get paid as much as men do. You have to negotiate harder and know your value or even, and this is not a knock on Sheryl Sandberg, but, but, you know, a book that says lean in, like lean in, you know, I, I just want to laugh. I I'll tell you the women that I worked with that I was fortunate enough to cross paths were so bright and so um, ambitious. If it was as simple as doing those things, we'd all be sitting in chairman chairs. And if women aren't negotiating harder when they're, you know, trying to get higher pay, or if they're sitting in rooms being cooperative, yes, we are socialized a certain way. There's a truth in that. I'm not denying that. 
But the part that is not understood, is under understood, is that women are responding to the reality of that workplace. If you know that you're going to go in and negotiate your contract and that what might be perceived as um, a sign of self-confidence to, for men to go in and negotiate, but is perceived as women as being overreaching and abrasive in a way that not only is not going to get you that pay raise, but is going to get you earmarked as a person that the men who are in church don't really get along with and don't feel like they can work with well. Did you accomplish anything? I will tell you, you know, that most ambitious, successful women I know have a very finely tuned instrument about when to push and when it's just banging your head against the wall in a way that's ultimately just going to hurt your career. So um, I don't know. I hope I explained that in a in a clear way. Yeah, it's a classic double standard. It's an oversimplification because what works for men won't necessarily work for women. You're basically saying if, if a man is assertive, he's praised as being this strong leadership guy. And if a woman's assertive, she's bossy. Yeah. And I and I was in rooms where there's com- those conversations happened when, you know, a man could ask for a certain thing related to his advancement, whether it's pay or a title or whatever. And a woman could ask for the exact same thing. And there would be the postmortem conversation would be like, what was that about? That's so overreaching. That's so, you know, grandiose and, and uppity. Yeah, what whatever label. And and by the way, the same principle that I'm speaking to applies to what happened with the Me Too movement. You know, you hear people say sometimes when there's these stories from the past about instances of sexual harassment or things that people put up with. And, you know, it, it, it's kind of a knee-jerk reaction. People say, well, why didn't you do something at the time? Why didn't you say no? Why didn't you report him? Well, I can tell you why people didn't, because I lived those truths myself. It was a no-win situation. You were not, that was not going to be a situation where you were going to come out the winner on the other side. If you were in these institutions where the culture was well-established, men could do those things and there would be no consequence. If you went in and said, this happened to me, the response was, why are you making trouble? Why are you creating ripples? One of the things, I mean, there's much that's obviously um, great about the progress that's represented in the Me Too movement, but it's changed the dynamic in a way that now there's an opening for women to come forward and lean into those conversations and be successful. And so that's why you're seeing everyone come forward now. So what do you think has changed? Is it Was it just like the Me Too movement was this bottleneck and this critical point where there was enough exposure and enough momentum that now the cat's out of the bag and people have to deal with it? Um, do you think it's a sign of general evolution? Are people on board with this? Are they reluctantly going around? I'm thinking of shows that are out right now that are exploring this, that, um, what's it, The Morning Show? You know, there's mm-hmm. all these shows that are kind of digging into mm-hmm. these cultural shifts that are happening. And they they're seem to be playing with this notion that on, on one end of the spectrum, there's a genuine, genuine evolution happening and forward progress. And on the other end, it's just people having to pay lip service to something that's happening against their will. They don't want to relinquish power, but they know they kind of have to. Like, Well, I think change comes, you know, uh, there has to be a cultural readiness for that change. And that's evolutionary. I mean, it's we saw that with, you know, the fact that <clears throat> if you look back statistically at how many people supported gay marriage, it was a small amount until you know, there was a certain recognition through a variety of factors. And then it flipped almost entirely. Yeah. And, and the majority of Legalization people... Legalization of weed, same thing. Yeah. Well, I think that 
um, some of that is what's happening now. It's a little bit of a boiling pot situation. You know, there's been well-established frameworks and hierarchies, certainly in the entertainment business, which have not favored women, people of color, and strongly favored, you know, white men. I mean, that's just the reality of how those power structures work. But I think a boiling pot has been created in which, you know, I'll just speak to women for the moment. You know, women make up more than 50% of the population of our colleges and universities, more than 50% of our graduate schools, law schools, medical schools. And yet, you know, you look across Fortune 500 companies, you know, the president of the United States, no, or very little representation from women. And you say, how can this be? Women are 50% of the population out there. But that's, it speaks to the strength of these systems and hierarchies that are so well-established and how difficult it is to break through them. But all these very smart women, all these very smart people of color, all these um, very smart, you know, long repressed groups are becoming less and less tolerant of working so hard and earning their path forward and being denied it. And so, you know, you you see the cracks that are happening and people, um, you know, the mob pushing through when those cracks do happen. I mean, it's, it's, I don't, I, I sit here today knowing that there's still a lot of work and it's really hard to make these systemic change, but it delights me to see that a moment has come and it's happening. Yeah, I, ha- I have to believe that there's some evolution happening. I'm just, the images that come to mind, I think of the pictures of the original suffragettes, right? And it's these women holding banners and marching, and there's no men to be seen in there, right? If you think of the women's march that happened right on after Trump was elected, there are at least men among them, right? And so there's a picture here that even though there's systemic, entrenched systemic problems, there are men who want to help and I'm, and look at all these these honors that you've received, and it makes me so impressed, you know, and proud of you as a friend. But it also reminds me that it's usually women doing things for women. Like, why did the people who are the oppressed or the underprivileged having to help themselves? You'd think that in a healthier culture, eventually, that it would be those in power trying to help. So, so what I'm wondering if if we're applying this to Hollywood, what can men do? And and we can explore this on the sort of micro level of you know, you alluded to some behaviors or like double standards that happen. It'd be interesting to sort of break that down a little bit more, but also on the macro level of if the system needs to change, then what can men do to change it? I think to answer that question, you have to start with understanding, you know, what it would take to really make change happen. And I I think there's, there's two different factors at play both challenging in different ways. One reason why this, you know, systemic hierarchical um, system that favors, you know, white men and keeping them in power and, you know, passing the baton to other white men, why why does that keep perpetuating itself? I know we, we're seeing some high-level women break through. Why, why isn't it just crumbling? And there's, and there's two reasons. One, there's a strong incentive to not acknowledge sexism and on an individual basis that you are sexist. There's negative connotations like no one wants to admit they're a racist, even though we're all socialized to have certain biases. And if we're really honest, we could say, look, everyone's got some of these things. Let's understand and not, um, you know, demonize it so that we can try to fix it. 
That's true about sexism too. And so there's a whole resistance to you. If you sit down and you have a conversation with men who are in power and about making these changes within an organization, there's a lot of, of course, of course, of course. But when you talk about their individual behavior, it's like, well, you know, let me talk to you about my talk. Look at all the women I've hired. Look at all the women. Everyone wants to point to the women who are in their, um, you know, reporting group as evidence that they're, they're not sexist. So I would say one thing that will really result in a huge step forward is if we collectively, I'm talking about both men and women, say, look, we can we will appropriately criticize and bring consequences to people who are doing horrible things. But let's step aside from that and just philosophically acknowledge that we were all socialized, men and women, in ways that are way less than ideal. Men were told they were going to be in charge, that they're leaders. Women were told they're not really leaders. Get along. Don't make too many waves. And all of what happens after that are reverberations of those problems. Let's just acknowledge we have a societal issue and start to break down the truth about no one's no one's at fault, no one's pointing a finger at you. Let's figure out what the solution is. If we could accomplish that, that would be a huge step forward. And I, I explained it in a way that's simple, but I think actually making it happen, not so simple. I love the way you're saying it because... Um, I think that there's, and I say this with the caveat, I tend to be a person whose values are considered pretty progressive, liberal, and lefty. But I do think that there's an emergent problem on the left now, and it's maybe motivated by uh, this explosion of frustration that came out of the Trump era. But there's sort of a, a bad branding. And so, like you talked about, people being socialized a particular way, um, the sort of hardcore vocal people in a certain crowd will say like, well, everybody's racist, everybody's sexist. And when you start using that language, even some terms that are totally legitimate terms, patriarchy, male privilege, these are things I'm comfortable with. But most of the people that actually need to engage with these topics, I don't think no, that right. their, their conversation enters. So the way, you, the way you just talked about it without even making a big point is... I think a key to those conversations progressing, because no, how many people are going to want to say, well, you're right, I'm racist. But if you say, you're right, I have, I have inherited certain blind spots, maybe, or I harbor certain thoughts or feelings that don't reflect a mind that's free of bias, you know, and it sounds like you're kind of beating around the bush. But I think that kind of thing invites people in. When I was doing the um, online sessions that were preparation for this podcast, certain people would join the conversations that were of slightly more conservative or traditional valued backgrounds, but really wanted to engage in the conversations. And I learned from some of those people that if I just change the vocabulary that I use, they're willing to talk about the concept that I'm introducing. Whereas if I just come at it from, let's talk about patriarchy and male privilege and sexism, they're just like the wall comes down. Yeah, right? no, absolutely. And I think you can, I think it, I, you're 100% right. And I think there are ways, if you're smart, to really encourage people and make them feel comfortable. I mean, if you sit down, if you sat down with leaders in a company and you said, listen, no one needs to be um, defensive here. Well, I am going to assume for purposes of this discussion with all of you that you have the best of intentions, that you're on the right side of this, and it's a complicated um, problem to solve, but we're all going to go at it together given the state of things right now. We're assuming good, positive attention is for the purpose of this conversation. You know, you'll get a lot further than um, you would going about it in the way you said. But let me also make one point. 
you know, working within big companies and um, corporate environments, I'll tell you, there's a fast track to making things happen. And it's if you tie people's compensation to doing something. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to point out money talks that, um, you know, from a corporate from a business perspective, you know, sexism could be eliminated. Um, Racism could be eliminated, there could be a level playing field. If you said to people, if you said within your corporate structure and your management structure and your C-suite executives, you know, your your compensation, your bonuses are going to be tied to how quickly, you know, you accomplish this. Use all your big brains and all your people with big brains, go figure it out. But you're going to get a bonus of X if you do it and a bonus of X if you don't do it. It would solve the problem. But of course, the people who would institute those same, that decision are the same people who are, you know, have to be convinced that this is a problem that needs to be solved. Which brings me to my second point. When I was saying earlier, um, there's two pieces to to formulating change. One of this is let's take the stigma off of it. The second is maybe harder, even though I think that first one was pretty hard. The second one is when people have power and control and they benefit from it, and you're saying, you should give that give up. Give up some of that? Yeah. You should give that Nobody up. wants to give up power. You'd be surprised, not only how resistant, I think resistance is, I think, you know, understandable under those circumstances, but, and also the, <laughs> the crazy ways that people will rationalize why they shouldn't have to and why change is bad. Because underneath it, they don't want to give up. If, if you're in a system that favors you, it's pretty hard to persuade you that you should change it. So to go back to what I was saying before about compensation, remember all the people that benefit from these are the ones that hold the levers of making this change. And, you know, it's funny. I worked with so many smart people. I worked with so many well-intended people and I, I put both men and women in that category. But I think if you really hooked a lot of the um the people in charge, if you hook them up to a lie detector test, and, you know, let's presume for this example, which, by the way, is true, that that they were all or most men. If you hooked them up to a lie detector and said, do you think sexism really exists in the workplace in 2021? They would say no. They would say no. Because they look around, they believe that, you know, the opportunities are there for women to succeed. And as I mentioned earlier, they can point to a number of high-profile women in high-profile jobs, and they think that's evidence that the problem has been solved. Right. It's like people thought racism didn't exist anymore once Obama was elected president. See, we got a black president. Problem solved. But, you know, if you really want to get the true answer of whether sexism still exists in these institutions, you should ask a couple key questions. If women still have to be invited to the table by the men in charge, if that decision is entirely in the hands of the men in charge, the problem still exists. Right. You know, and and that's just a truth. And secondarily, I'm I'm so happy for the women who have accomplished so much and earned it to be in these senior level jobs. And there's many of them out there. You know, Dana Walden, I could name a million, Donna Langley. Um, Jennifer Salky at Amazon. There's a lot of women in really big, important jobs in the entertainment industry right now. But A, they all report to male bosses. I would just like to point that out. But if you really want to ask the question of how we're doing, you look within these organizations and you say, 
how are people growing into these jobs? Because you can always go out into the world if you want to have a woman or a person of color in a high-level job. You can always go out and find that person and bring them in. But to really take the report card of how these institutions do, you look at as people advance and you say, What's the track record of how men advance? What's the track record of how women advance? What's the track record of how people of color advance? And then you know by the answer, and we all know what those answers are, that you have a system that's set up to favor certain people. Right. And this is so interesting because you could really take the point you're making and just go as macro as possible, which we did when we were talking at lunch. You know, you look at this massive conundrum that we face in the United States and pretty much in the entire world. What do you do? when hugely powerful corporations control government, right? It's like money is controlling everything. How are you going to get meaningful policy change to happen when the people that are controlling the policy change have a vested interest in preserving the policies that serve their interests and they're controlling them? And that's the question of who wants to give up power. Or it's, you know, you were talking about uh, different taxation systems that could incentivize the people in power if they really saw that they don't have to give up too much for a system that's better and more sustainable. I think somewhere the answer, I don't, I don't have an answer to offer to this. It's a, it's the sort of the eternal, maybe the biggest conundrum, but I think it lies somewhere in what you're hinting at, which is, can those in power be persuaded that they don't have to entirely give up all of their power, but that in a more even playing field or the concept of equity really fully realized ultimately will benefit them in other ways. And so you can approach that from a few different angles. Part of what I'm getting at is I think that the most persistent, obstinate hanger on to power, the energy behind that lies in the fact that the system itself is a dominance hierarchy. And I think a dominance hierarchy is something through which human beings are more connected to their animal nature than to their future nature. The whole reason that I have this pretentious name Omega Male to this podcast is the idea of wanting to envision in an idealized way, like what we could become. Can we become a people that doesn't value power over everything else? Because if we can somehow affect a collective and individual evolution over time, then maybe Power is something people will more likely give up because it won't be the be-all, end-all. I want you to speak to, if you will, something that we've we've talked about in, in private conversation because I think it's a good example of not only what men do to women, but what men do to other men in business that is, I don't want to use the word toxic, but let's just say caveman-y, right? You, you mentioned two incidences. One was a reference to Sheryl Crow. Um, sharing on her podcast about, you know, dealing with this um, uh, bullying, to say the least, manager that offered her certain opportunities. And and there was this sort of like the, the carrot or the stick. Um, and I think you mentioned Steve Jobs. So these are well-known people, examples that are like publicly documented all over the place. There's probably hundreds of thousands of them. But where um, the technique of persuasion was if you don't do what I want, because I'm more powerful than you, I'm not going to let you just walk away from this. I'm going to ruin you. Like I'm going to, I'm going to stomp you on the way out. Like if you don't, if you don't go with me and do the deal I want to do, not only are we not going to do this deal, but you're not going to do a deal with anyone else. And there's something that's really um, kind of primitive and caveman-y about that. And I think that that 
kind of thing is, I wonder if there's other things that you observe in the way the business works that are um, rooted in this kind of dominance uh, craving behavior that make things bad for not just women and the oppressed peoples, but anyone who's not the alpha, right? It's this whole alpha beta thing. Anyone's not at the food, top of the food chain is hurt by this. And, and nobody stays at the alpha forever, right? So everybody in this system at some point gets stomped on. So I wonder like, how can we, how can we evolve to that place? What would you like to see change systemically in individuals? We've talked a little bit systemically. I sometimes think like in human evolution, the, the systemic change actually precedes the individual change. Like we have laws because we know as a group that it's like bad to kill somebody, but we've, we all haven't personally evolved to the level where we won't just go out and kill somebody. Most people won't, but you know, we don't have anarchy. We're not ready for anarchy. So maybe a, what are systemic changes that could kind of lead us toward this mentality change? But, but B, if you're thinking of the men that your daughters will be working alongside, for example, how would you like to see them deal with situations differently that would reflect a whole new paradigm? Let me try to organize an answer to that by saying, I think one thing that's going to drive change, and it's it's a notion that is getting more and more understood and is growing right now, that it's not just principles of right and wrong here or equity. It actually drives business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, w- women are good leaders, but even besides that, if you let the best people, the people who in a, in a system of meritocracy actually run the businesses instead of defaulting to the system of choosing leaders that's based on outdated notions. You know, people who sound self-confident and who say they know everything and who are take charge and have some of this, what you were describing as cavemanosity. We, historically, those kinds of people, we, we've awarded them um, with, with the banner of saying, you we think you're walking and talking like a leader and they're given roles that reflect that. But now we're understanding based on, you know, what we're seeing um, both from academic studies, but also success of businesses. That's not what makes businesses succeed. And people who are really good managers, good managers, it's a difference between people who are driving their own individual success and agenda and someone who understands this business is really going to be its most um, profitable and successful version of itself if everybody is working to their fullest potential, if everybody is motivated to lean in and do the best job they can. So people who are really good managers who sit back and say, how do I get the best out of this team? How do I get everyone to be inspired, committed, wanting to do their best work, wanting to do their smartest work? recognizing everyone isn't the same, find the people, lean into people's strengths, move people around so they can do what they do. When we realize that those people drive business, drive profits, they should be in charge instead of this nonsensy way we've chosen business, you know, leaders in the past, that's going to win. Because in the end, everyone wants to make money from these businesses. But it speaks to how deeply rooted these problems are that even despite the fact that some of these things are actually bad for the business, they've continued that's yeah. that's a real head scratcher, but it's true. You know, this point brings to mind a little bit of a guilty pleasure show. Have you watched Billions at all, this show? I, I've sampled it. I know right. the show. So yeah. it's, it's, you know, I love that they've taken possibly the most kind of dominance, hierarchical, toxic environment of, you know, the investment world. And they've introduced a, a non-binary character who has a, a very non-aggressive temperament 
and their whole team around them of these sort of like geeks that are on the show described as betas, but they're these very these people that are being given jobs that they're very good at. And despite all of this sort of alpha male macho stuff that's happening in the in the main roles, there are these other secondary characters who are kind of mirroring and also or holding up a mirror for those characters and and sort of illustrating what you're talking about that actually helps. And, you know, at some point in this, I don't know what, fourth season, the big macho alpha guy decides to bring in this team of sort of misfit beta geniuses like that he would describe because they're doing better than all of this, his crazy macho team. So I like, and that sort of also feeds into another thing I wanted to say that I alluded to earlier for all of Hollywood's fame for being kind of at the center of the Me Too movement and all the transgressions of Harvey Weinstein's and whatnot and Kevin Spacey. Um, Hollywood does, including the companies that, that you've worked for um, and Warner Media particularly, there's a lot of really great, what I would call progressive healthy content being generated in this industry that allows those kind of visions to play out a little bit. I think I think there's a direct correlation to how many women are now in charge of content. I mean, you know, I saw during during my time um, at both working at the Turner Networks, but then the HBO Max, you know, Sarah Aubrey was brought in to be head of content. And I will tell you, from the day she walked in the door, she said she had an objective to create gender parity to bring more women to the forefront of storytelling, to have more women behind the camera, to have more women writing, to have more women directing. Same with people of color. And, you know, when you have a committed person doing that, change happens much more swiftly than you would you would imagine. And so, you know, there's lots of, I was talking before about all these high-level women and they still have male bosses, but there's lots of women who are head of content right now. And I think we're really seeing that reflected in the storytelling that's in front of us. Also, I think... Um, there's a hunger for it from audiences. People are, people got tired and weary and bored with hearing the same stories told by the same writers who had the same um, vantage point and viewpoint of life. And, you know, you see things like, you know, I, I don't mean to use really patently obvious examples, but, you know, when you have movies like Black Panther and Crazy Rich Asians, without even speaking to the quality of those shows, and I commend them and love them like everyone did, there's such a hunger to see representation of different people in different roles at the leads of stories and, and having a different window into alternative universes and people's experiences. You don't have to be an Asian person to enjoy and love a window into a world that you didn't know and have a dramatic or great story told. You know, and think of the myriad possibility out there, whether it's, you know, Stories from people all around the world, people living different experiences within our own country, you know, people on the spectrum of, you know, the economic spectrum, what their lives look like. There's a lot of material out there to mine and tell. And I think people want to hear it and see it. Yeah, it gives me great hope and optimism to see uh, what it consequently is being created because of that. Because I think for the same reason you're here, and it's from the beginning, uh, this concept for me has involved not wanting just to be men talking about how men can be better, but learning from women, there's actually, because everything is polarized, even in the sort of men's movement that started kind of in the 90s, there was sort of a polarization that happened. And on the one side of it is the sort of drum beating, Robert Bly, inner wild man, uh, you know, the um, mythopoetic side. And this is all about men 
feeling like they've been disenfranchised of their like traditional roles and wanting to get back into initiation and being good fathers. And some of it's great and, and, and some of it doesn't really speak to me that strongly. And then there was sort of the feminist faction uh, that was basically like men are toxic, masculine. We need to learn from women, shut up and listen. And um, and those are kind of two important poles, but I, I sort of feel like the healthy evolution is in a more balanced state. And so it's interesting for me to see the content produced by men dealing with the collapse of, of traditional masculinity. I think of like, if you look at a show like Ray Donovan, which on the surface is such a, you know, here's this guy who basically beats people up and does really violent things for a living just to solve problems. But on a deeper layer, he and his brothers were molested by a priest. His dad was in prison and like had sex with men. And they're all dealing with all of these their crumbling inner um, sense of self. And so that show in a very male oriented way is men, uh, I feel like grappling with masculinity. And in a way, by the end of the show, you realize, oh, this, this whole surface of being this like alpha macho uh, brutish guy basically railroads him into personal ruin and everything in his life falls apart directly as a result of his, even being a power player in this dominance hierarchy it takes everybody down versus a show like Jane the Virgin, which is one of my favorite shows in the last 10 years, written and created by women who are actually offering um, not judgmental, but very idealized pictures of men and how men can be, how sensitive they can be, the relationships they can have with each other, how they can learn to like divest themselves of their caveman stuff, like really beautiful images. Ted Lasso, I think, is sort of like the ultimate, like if, I, if there's a poster child for Omega Male, it's like... There's a guy who's like just actually kind and a true team player as a coach. And and so there's like, there's really beautiful things emerging. One of my favorite things that happened, um, and I think it's a direct result of um, women being allowed to create something without the interference of men. When, when the first Wonder Woman movie came out, I thought it was great. I was happy that like, you know, women now had a superhero, but there was a part of me that felt like, yeah, but she's still kind of doing a man thing, meaning she's just using violence and dominant energy to vanquish and kill the foes. Like, wouldn't it be great if there was a new kind of a completely different paradigm for superheroes where maybe they don't they don't use that destructive power? And sure enough, the second movie, the follow up was created. Um, I don't think it was as successful. I personally loved it just for the fact a, it was created mostly by women. And the whole message of it was like, to they're avoiding using violence at all costs, right? And it's like this whole, instead of just being this black and white of the villain is evil and we need to kill him, the villain is someone who's like, you know, you understand their dysfunction because you get their backstory and she's compassionate towards the pain of the villain. And she even to the last moment is trying to heal the villain, you know, and appeal to his, you know, being a father. And she only ever uses violence when she has to and she generally tries not to and she has compassion for the person, the, her fellow woman who like in a toxic way thinks that violence is the thing to use and steals her power. Like there's so many great messages in it. So I I, I do feel like the more that those voices are are being given a platform, um, wonderful things can happen. And in a weird way, it's like Hollywood gets to learn from its own content creators. So, I mean, I, you know, I don't, I, I think that um, it would be easy to talk about this industry as just being this toxic environment. But in fact, I think it's, it's um, because of what you're talking about. Um, well, if you get from, healing. you know, we've been talking about, you know, the behind the scenes and how the business are run and, you know, how people get put in 
in, in the seats of power, meaning making decisions about what gets made and all that stuff. But looking at it from the opposite perspective or a different perspective, you know, if you look at Hollywood from the perspective of the power it has to change society. And um, that is so um, amazing. Even with all the stratification in terms of how people watch stuff now, you know, it is the quickest path to societal change to go out with uh, storytelling that actually resonates with a large group of people. And I remember being at um, a conference in my career with... um, Gosh, it was on um, unconscious bias by the Harvard doctor who was one of the um, original um, researchers, Dr. Banaji, her name is. And um, she was talking to us about how, because, you know, you get into these discussions about racism and unconscious bias and things like that. And it, it you can feel kind of hopeless because of the slow pace of change. But she, I remember her telling us the story she was talking about. Um, gay marriage and that the example I used earlier, but she really credited the show Will and Grace for being a tipping point in society that for, for a viewing audience, for a widely um, watched and consumed show, so that reached a really large audience, for them to see and relate to, um, you know, the gay characters that were represented and, and take away a lot of the preconceived notions or, you know, people who didn't understand or weren't exposed. I mean, I'm, I'm sure everyone has someone that's gay in their life, whether they know it or not. But, you know, there was a lot of people who had notions of other that they projected onto. But to see those characters play out in a way that's lovable and relatable, um, she, she thought that that really sped the wheel of change significantly. And I was so inspired by that thought. I hope that's true. Because um, what's better if you work in the media business than to believe that you can actually try to craft one of these wonderful, magical, catch lightning in a bottle shows or movies and put it out there in a way that could, you know, shift um, society in some meaningful and important way. I mean, that's What's what's better than that? There's no question that that's happening. I I I, you know I was talking to a friend about how much TV we were both watching and as and not reading as much as we used to. And she made a point that I originally didn't resonate with me, but I I had sort of had to embrace that. In a way, TV is is the new books. I mean, you don't have to give up books, but the the level of quality of content and the way that we're we're we can engage with it now, which is so much higher than your like 1980s sitcoms or whatever. There's a really meaningful. Yeah, it's nuanced there. and sophisticated. And and the more nuanced and sophisticated it is, the I think the greater the capacity is for it affecting social change. And I really think it does drive that. And in a way, if I were um, being true to my optimistic nature, I would probably just uh, wrap up our discussion now. But I I feel like before before we end on a positive note, <laughs> I wanted to dig in just a little bit just just so that people don't leave this with this feeling like, oh, yes, it's like everything is wonderful on the horizon. There really is some some deep-seated dysfunction still in Hollywood. And I have a, I have a male friend who was um, working for an unnamed um, reputable production company and who suffered, um, just like w- many women have, uh, have suffered. It wasn't sexual harassment, but just like really physical, psychological bullying. And one of the things that surprised me about his situation was that he had very little recourse and support in terms of being able to report it and take action and have the person be held accountable. 
And so I thought if this is happening, and this is also like a, a pretty like guy that if you met him would be like, this is a tough guy, you know, he's no wilting Lily. So somebody was bullying this poor guy um, in a way that was deeply demoralizing and depressing to him. And, and he was in an environment, which I have to think of as probably a typical environment. Um, and much like so many of the women, the female victims we heard about in the Me Too movement for various abuses, didn't get a lot of support. And so I'm wondering, uh, not something I you can sh- feel free to share anything that you've observed in this regard, but reminds me a little bit of the Catholic Church, right? When we, it's only been revealed in the last 20 years or so, how many of these abuses happened throughout various strata in the Catholic Church, and they were just summarily swept under the rug. Bishops were moved, priests were moved, people were protected. There's a seems to be a little bit of that going on in Hollywood where um, shuff, stuff gets shoved under the rug. And the consequence, it, is, it still happens. I just read something today uh, about a pretty prominent person um, who's now in the hot seat for stuff happening, nude pictures of some female employee being showed at the Christmas party. I mean, you've probably read this story, but talk about that a little bit. Like, what are the dark areas that you really think are kind of the emergency zones where you wish you could just sort of shake men collectively and say, why do you keep doing this? And what can men help hold each other accountable there? Is it kind of like, not to throw everyone under the bus here, but is it like you hear about some police departments? Again, I have nothing against the police and there's amazing departments um, throughout the nation, but there are some corrupt departments where someone within their department sees the corruption and wants to do something about it and then gets shut down by the corrupt power structure. Is there a way through that in in Hollywood? Do you still see, am I making this up or does that still exist? Well, you know, you talked about a lot of different things there, but look, I think a change is coming. I, I lived through an era where people who were bullies, it was irrelevant. You know, if anything, it was sort of... Um, it was sort of admired. People, there was no ceiling to what was perceived as, quote, toughness or powerfulness. And those people who were abusive, who, and, you know, putting aside sexual aggression, but, you know, who just bullied people and made people feel bad in a workplace and all that kind of stuff, it was completely ignored in the context of, you know, their performance, if 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 not treated as a positive. I think there's a shift that's happening about that. I won't say I think it's accomplished. I I still think there's plenty of pockets in the industry where really terrible behavior occurs. And if that person is managing to deliver some measure of success, and that's a whole other can of worms, the different ways that we um, quantify success in the entertainment business. Uh, If that person is perceived as being successful, a lot gets ignored. A lot gets ignored. But to your question of whether we can hold each other accountable, I truly believe that that happens. And I think that's a quick path to change. And and I think um, one thing that's really shifted in the last number of years um, is that, you know, now a mirror has been held up about all this bad behavior, whether it's bullying, whether it's sexual aggression, whether it's sexism or racism. It's in the discourse. It's in the common um you know, parlance, we're all, we're all looking at those issues and recognizing them. So because it's on the surface now, it becomes much easier to hold up the mirror to people who are behaving badly in a way that, I mean, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that shaming someone is the right path, but holding up the mirror to their behavior in a way that makes them realize it's, it reflects poorly on them. 
you know, there was, like I said, many, many years where you couldn't, you couldn't shame someone out of terrible behavior because there was no shame to it. It was a badge of success. But now, um, and I'll give a small example. I think I've told you this story before, but it, it, it's, it's a minor example, but it's illustrative. You know, um, there's been lots talked about and read about about uh, women being interrupted in business meetings and talked over and things like that. And um, and it's true. It happens. I'll tell you it happens. It's very common. Again, speaks to, you know, how we get socialized and things like that. And a lot of times, you know, someone would speak over a woman, she just immediately stopped talking. And 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 by the way, it's tough. That's a lose-lose situation because if you insist and you're too forceful, there's a perception about that too, you know, so you're, you're just in a bad situation. But in the meetings that I held and um, in my workplace, I found that it was pretty easy to flip a switch with the men to to get to get them to first recognize that they were doing it and stop doing it because it really happens I think mostly unconsciously. So, you know, if I was in a meeting and a woman was talking and one of the guys would interrupt or anybody for that matter, someone would interrupt, I would say, "Hang on one second, let's let her finish." But not in a mean way or I'm trying to embarrass you wait, but it was enough to point out to everyone in the room, including that person, you're interrupting. Right. And you do that a couple of times, people stop doing it. You're, I think, I have to say, I think you're uniquely gifted at that kind of diplomacy. And uh, and that's not to say that people can't do this. I wish you could give lessons on how to do this because it's, it speaks to the point we were saying earlier where if just casting something in a positive, not shaming light, you're just, it's just much more effective to do it that way, mm-hmm. right? And, and then also, I think if you do it in a way that's clearly intended to, in the most gentle way, point it out and not embarrass someone, and then people want to get on board. I think, you know, if you encourage people in the right way to want to be their best self, <laughs> they do. They rise to the occasion. So I was really um, buoyed by and encouraged by the fact that I saw real change in my meetings by just making that little shift, by recognizing the problem, trying to find a way to deal with it in a constructive and positive way. And creating a much-needed opportunity for women to get their thoughts and and contributions on the table, so they had the same opportunity to advance their careers that everyone else had. Um, yeah, that's just a win for everybody involved. That same talent is related to your talent of being able to take my incredibly overwrought and long-winded, uh, off-the-cuff questions and distilling them into something you could answer. So, thank you for doing that. Is there anything that I haven't touched upon that you'd like to talk about? I was going to, at some point, just invite you to dig into your, go back as far as you wanted to, um, talk about stuff you might have encountered in college or before that as a girl dealing with, you know, bad male behavior or patriarchal systems. I don't, we don't have to go there, but is there anything at all, even about the present industry, anything that I haven't, um, that you think would be of interest? Well, um, I think, well... You can't be a woman that's been in the business for the length of time I have been. You know, I was at my job in the Turner slash Time Warner slash Warner Media world for 26 years. That is a really long run. And in terms of just my adult professional life, I worked at a law firm for a few years before I before I went into that job. You can't have worked that stretch and not experienced some really... Um, sobering, terrible examples of some of the things we've talked about. I personally lived through many of them, and they make for 
I was going to say good storytelling. That's a bad way to categorize it. They're, they're, they're good historical examples to look at about how bad it was in a way that it's even hard to process today. But it also speaks to just how much women had to overcome and withstand to advance their careers to get to the places they've gotten. And that even though there's still plenty of things to solve, there has been significant progress. And it's been, I mean, when I look back at my younger career self and I look back on some of those instances of, excuse me, things I had to put up with, I'm so sad for my younger self. I mean, that was a rough sled. I didn't feel that way at the time. I recognized it as just what I had to deal with, and it was part of what was. You had to accept it if you were going to move forward and succeed, and I did. But now when I look back on it, I think, oh, my goodness, you know, for a young person, man, woman, anyone to have had to have gone through those experiences just in an earnest effort to be doing the best job they could in advance, that it's it's really it's shameful that makes that makes me sad but that sounds like a whole second podcast yeah maybe we should maybe we should i have another female friend who's a pretty successful producer and i was asking her uh, a similar question about what she'd had to deal with and she said that she was having kind of an awakening now because she didn't have any direct i was raped or you know directly assaulted experiences but she the more she reflected on it she said there were so many there was like extra unpaid labor i had to do uh to circumvent to avoid to dance around to get myself out of situations that could have become much worse if it was just dealing with the unwanted flirtation of a of a superior who wouldn't stop and like having to find using humor and sort of deflections and being coy in this way. Yeah, and, and the amount really, of you know, energy you put into I mean, I I I ultimately became very resentful of all of the energy I had to expend both to dance around those types of issues but also to um deal with various various examples of toxic leadership and you know, when someone is in charge, you don't have any choice. You have to find a way to be successful with that person if that means delivering information in a way that circumvents their ego or you know you 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 have an objective you're trying to get something done but the the tax that you pay the additional amount of energy is just so unfair it's so wrong and i you know those people shouldn't be in those jobs it comes back to where we started and it's kind of the theme throughout this you know good leaders aren't people who are getting in the way of other people doing a good job. They're inspiring people to do the best job. And, you know, I I, I think the evolution of business and corporations and the entertainment business is, is going to turn on how we select those leaders and based on what criteria. Okay. I'm going to give you one last question, then we'll wrap it up. So if you were taking that spirit of looking forward, um, and instead of it being Feminist Fridays and you're talking to your female um, cohorts and also um, people who are following you and looking up to you. If you were invited to speak to a room of young men going into the industry who really will hopefully be empowered to change uh, and help this cultural shift we're talking about, what would you say to them? Well, I think most people who go into the business are ambitious and want to succeed and want to move forward. So, uh, you know, I would like to believe in an idealized world that you could speak to people from a, from a pure sense of right and wrong and let's do the right thing, let's be fair, let's treat people properly. Um, that's idealistic and doesn't work usually. <laughs> I, I, 
I like. I'm an idealist. Bring I, it on. I, I'm I an, love that. I, stuff. I'm an idealist too. But by the way, I've spent. I have made many an effort over my years of trying to appeal to people's higher purpose and best self and success rate low. But um, I do think you can speak. You can be much more effective speaking a language of personal success. And if we if we recast success, if I was um, speaking to a group of young men at an early stage of their career, I would say. Be forward thinking. Be at the forefront of this. The age of individualized success, like what can I do to get ahead? How can I prove myself? How can I move as fast as I can? That's not, that's not the win anymore. If you really want to stand out, position yourself as the person who wants to make the whole organization rise, the person who creates equality, the person who finds the way to maximize the potential of everyone, you'll stand out. That's powerful. I think that's a good note to end on. Sandra Dewey, uh, you're not only a wonderful friend, but you are a very compelling podcast interviewee. So thank you for sharing your time. It was my pleasure, truly. And that concludes episode two of Omega Mail featuring Sandra Dewey. Thanks so much to Sandra. Please follow us by pressing the follow button on the podcast. Please recommend us to other people. Please check out future episodes. And if you'd like to contact me, Dan McKenzie, just drop a line to Omega Mail Says, O-M-E-G-A-M-A-L-E-S-A-Y-S at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, um, either particularly for Omega Mail at at Omega Mail Says, or my regular handle is at Dan McKenzie with a Y, D-A-N-M-A-C-K-E-N-Z-Y. I'm not a huge tweeter, Twitter, tweeter, to be honest, but if I get more followers, maybe that'll change. <laughs>